welcome to the December meeting of the Silicon Valley Speechwriters Roundtable. I'm Barbara Seymour Giordano, a fellow freelance speechwriter who was lucky enough to be interviewed last May by the show's host, Ian Griffin. Today, I'm honored to have the chance to interview the man behind the curtain. <laughs> the reason I'm interviewing him is I wanted to know who this man is that gives us the opportunity to come together, to hear what our fellow speechwriters are up to, and talk shop. But before we jump in, I'd like to remind you, if you haven't already joined the Cantillion Speechwriters Group on LinkedIn, of which I am a member, proudly, I highly recommend you do. The site will keep you up to date on the latest speechwriting information, events, and news. Jumping in, today's guest is Ian Griffin, founder of this very meetup, who has worked as a freelance speechwriter as well as the corporate world as well as in the corporate world. He's been a speechwriter and executive communications manager at Cisco. Hewlett Packard, and Sun Microsystems. He's also a past member of both the National Speakers Association and Toastmasters. Many of you may be familiar with Ian's professionally speaking blog, which he started back in January of 2006. Since then, he's published over a thousand articles on speech writing, public speaking, cultural differences, global warming, and other pet peeves which I love, recordings of the past Silicon Valley Speechwriters Roundtable meetings are also available on the Professionally Speaking blog as podcasts. If you, are, if you haven't uh, had a chance to check out um, Ian's blog and listen to past podcasts, you're in for a treat. You can find it, um, all of these podcasts and the blog, at Executive dash coms.com and that's e-x-e-c dash coms c-o-m-m-s dot com this past march ian retired from the corporate world and is now focusing on brewing kombucha at home i love that uh, his latest venture booch news is an, an independent source for the kombucha new, industry news if you'd like to learn more about all things kombucha head out hand on over to booch news.com welcome ian to your podcast well, thanks. Oh, sorry. <laughs> thanks barbara it is a little strange to be on the uh in the guest chair as opposed to the interviewer chair but you're doing a great job introducing me and uh, i think we're going to have a great conversation oh definitely definitely well let's just dive right in then ian how does it feel to have the tables turned <laughs> Are you nervous? Oh, yeah, no, not really. I mean, it's uh, it's less stressful, I suppose. I don't have to look for the, uh, you know, uh, all, all of the minutiae to do with the conference call. That's relatively easy to arrange, but thank you for promoting it and coming up with the idea in the first place. It's oh, fun. This, this is really fun. I'm excited. So um, now I, I, I want to just do a little bit of background before we jump in. Um, further background than, than the bio that I just read, but uh, I detect a bit of an accent, Ian. Where were you born and what That's brought right. you to the U.S.? Yeah, I, I was born and raised in England in the British Midlands, or maybe slightly north of there in a town called Crewe in Cheshire. And the only people I've ever met in the U.S. who knew about Crewe said, oh, yes, that's where my owner's manual comes from because it's where they used to make Rolls-Royce cars, where my father worked. 
So if you own a Rolls Royce, you probably know where Crew is, or a Bentley now. But um, I uh, came over in the mid-70s to go to graduate school, and then I've lived in California since 1980, uh, permanently. Excellent. Excellent. So I'm, I'm fascinated to hear how people end up as speechwriters. Was mm-hmm. speechwriting a dream gig that you pursued, or did you just stumble into it? Yeah, definitely stumbled into it or backed into it or whatever. Um, I mean, the very brief overview is, you know, I was at Sun Microsystems for 15 years. I, I'd been in technical roles. I kind of latched onto the PC business when it first arose in the early 80s. And by 1990, I was hired by Sun Microsystems uh, in a technical support role. But I did, I did six different jobs in the 15 years I was at Sun. It was the advantage, I think, of a big company, especially in a dynamic world like the tech industry when it's expanding, is to uh, have that ability to switch careers. So I'd been in a role with a lot of customer-facing activity, doing presentations of company overviews in the customer briefing center at the headquarters, and uh, had been making suggestions for the content of that overview and determined that somebody referred me to the two or three speechwriters in the executive offices supporting the CEO and the other executives who created that overview. And, you know, they, they, that's where I heard about the opening and jumped in uh, in about 2002 to become a speechwriter. And there was no – it wasn't like I had to have a degree in rhetoric or anything. I, I knew the company's content, uh, the role of the company. I could write pretty, you know, much about any topic – certainly from the technical side as well as on the business side. And so it was a good fit like that versus, you know, there's other ways to get into speech writing, but that's how it worked for me. So was there a learning curve for you? I mean, did you, what did you think speech writing was going to be and what was it actually? Or was it, was it what you well, thought it was? It was, a, it was a natural segue in a sense, and this is especially appropriate for the Silicon Valley speechwriters roundtable because it was it was a Silicon Valley company, uh, some microsystems obviously. And I think it's generally true, if not exclusively true, that ninety plus percent of the presentations and speeches given in Silicon Valley by tech companies involve the you know PowerPoint graphics. You you almost never see a politician using PowerPoint. They might use a flip chart or something on the floor of the Senate, but they typically speak, you know, that's pure play speech writing. Um, in my case, as I said, I'd been involved with the Customer Briefing Center. Before that, I'd been developing presentations for training some salespeople and reseller partners. And so I knew my way around PowerPoint. I knew the content kind of came naturally. Um, so it was really a question of, you know, just going up to that next level, <clears throat> writing for the C-suite as opposed to individual departments, and it wasn't speech writing in the way that you see on the West Wing, um, where there are very good courses. People like Bob Lyman teach speech writing at the American University. I just, you know, it was just a natural extension of my previous skill sets, working with PowerPoint, putting together speaking points, having done a lot of my own presenting as well. Right, and that that's a, a question I have. So do you feel that uh, if you're a speechwriter that it's really important to also be a speaker? Well, that's a very interesting uh, perennial question, and, and I think a couple of people like yourself is, uh, do present as well. 
And I, I remember clearly when I was at the Reagan Speechwriters Conference in Washington, D.C., a couple of hundred people there. Um, this was many years ago. I've been to half a dozen Reagan conferences. But they did a straw poll, a show of hands of 60 people in a breakout session, how many also spoke or presented themselves. And only about four of us put our hands up. So I think it's true to say many, many, many speechwriters don't feel comfortable themselves presenting, and they don't necessarily need to. Um, you know, they're kind of there in the back office with the, the word processor, the green eye shade on, hammering away at the content. Um, but personally, I think if you stood behind the microphone yourself and presented from the podium, you have more of an understanding of, you know, the challenges that your principal will face when they actually deliver the content. Yeah. No, that's huge. Uh, I, I feel that way, definitely. So. You're preaching to the choir here, but I, I'm shocked to find out and uh, that so few actually uh, also present their own content because I think that there's so much to learn from it. At the top, a lot of mistakes. <laughs> right, so, what uh, what do you love about speech writing the most? Well, it's definitely got its two sides to the coin um, on the on the plus side, and again, what you'd see on the West Wing, what you do see in the corporate world is many speechwriters, like I did, get to travel with the CEO or the CFO and the corporate jet, you know, and that's got its own level of glamour. It wears thin pretty fast because it's usually, you know, it's not like you're on vacation. You're going on a corporate jet because you've got to get from A to B to C to D very quickly and probably work in the, in the air in the meantime. And it's also... There's definitely a challenge to being at very, very close quarters with a senior executive for hours and hours, and not everybody would feel necessarily comfortable with that. Um, but there's also, of course, the, the grind of doing all the research, coming up with all the proof points, fact-checking every which way, running it by review committees or reviews by other managers and holding your own against that. I mean, a lot of speechwriters have written about that in the White House. They write about, you know, Peggy Noonan and people wrote about the the way that the uh, bureaucracy would get a hold of a talk and try and water it down and water it down. But I enjoy, yeah, I mean, I'm, I think communicating via the spoken word, even in all of the age of social media we're in, which can be very relevant, is still a magic that people still look for and to have a hand in that it's uh, it's great. It's it's a it's a fun, challenging job, a career. Uh, what would you say was sort of the most frustrating part about speech writing? Well, the deadlines are obviously if the talk's being given at you know nine a.m. in a conference a week and a half from now, you can't you can't procrastinate. You have to get the first, second, third, fourth drafts ready. And, and in the corporate world, and it's true for freelancers as well, um, I mean, it, again, it's been well documented that effective speech writing requires access to what you can call the principal, whether it's the CEO or the politician or whoever, directly so you can get their voice, so you can get direct feedback. And I have to say, sometimes there was the challenge that that was kind of mediated by middle managers and VPs who, you know, they wanted FaceTime with the executives, so they would try and, you know, in, in, impose themselves in that sense. Um, that can be a challenge to deal with, um, 
you know, the design by committee kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and occasionally, I mean, there's been very, very specific challenges. I can remember the time I was, because part of the job was also responsible for recommending speaking engagements, researching them. Sometimes they have speaker bureaus, they call them, and the big companies who do that like they select the you know the venues that the executive would be best to speak at. But I was responsible a couple of times for suggesting and I remember embarrassing time when an executive had flown across the Atlantic to Barcelona, I believe, to kick off a major conference on a Friday at seven PM. Not I didn't realise and I didn't do due diligence to realise most people didn't show up until Saturday morning. So there was literally thirty oh. people in an auditorium that would hold two thousand. And of course, at that point, there's nothing you can do. But you know, you've definitely that would be a waste of everybody's time. The executives, most specifically. So yeah, the, the specific challenges. But um, yeah, the more you've got, yeah, the more you've got control over the content yourself, it, it works generally better. What percentage of the time when you worked with an executive did you have access to him or her? Well, that varied, you know, it varied. Um, sometimes if you're traveling with them, if you're in the limo or the, or the black car or whatever they call it, or the corporate jet, you have a lot of a lot of face time. Um, in general, I remember many times sitting in the boardroom or, or in a high-up, uh, high what I would call a high-up conference. And this was intriguing to me, was realizing what a forcing feature, in a way, that's the right word, as speech can be, because I clearly remember any number of times sitting in a room where literally I was the only person in the room without 5,000 people reporting to me in a multi-hundred million dollar budget, and these senior, senior SVPs, would say of the hardware side, the software side, the marketing side, the CEO, and maybe a couple of others, were kicking around, well, you know, and week on Friday, Ian's going to be drafting a speech that I have to give, the CEO would say, that where we announce this new solution, and then the software guy would say, well, wait a minute, it's not going to be running on that platform, is it? And the hardware guy would say, well, of course it's... And you'd watch the sort of sausage being made, which can be a bit unnerving on one hand, because in the corporate world, I quickly got uh, dissuaded of the impression that the CEO and the senior executives knew exactly what they were doing at all times, and... It was just my job to interpret, you know, and that's where a good speechwriter, they would look at you and you would maybe make concrete, you know, not policy decisions, but you could say, well, one way of avoiding that conflict would be not to stress that aspect of the announcement, but we could focus on this announcement, you know, this aspect of it or something like that. Right. So you were kind of getting everybody up to speed. They just stood there and read the teleprompter or the notes kind of thing. You had to be the one that was sort of the translational person. Yeah, translation's a good word. I think uh, certainly in the tech industry and probably in other specialized fields like finance and so on, um, your job, one of my roles, which I was kind of had to sort of be proud of and not ashamed of, was I was the least knowledgeable person in the room. If I had SVPs there, they were you know, the world expert in the company on that hardware platform, that software platform or whatever. But I was kind of the person who was representing, you know, Joe Average, who said, would say, wait a minute, what does that acronym mean? Or, you know, they would often make assumptions because they lived and breathed this day in and day out. 
ever presenting uh, in a certain way, and I would be one of my roles, one of them, not the only role, is to point out um, how the average person, the, you know, the least knowledgeable person in the room would hear and respond to what they were saying. And Bob Lemon in his book, which I think is the best book, I'll give it a plug, I've reviewed it on my blog, we've had Bob Lemon on this call, uh, is the political speechwriter's companion, but it's really for all speechwriters. And he makes a point there of you can check text in Microsoft Word. I think it's called the Fleisch-Kincaid reading score or something like that. And his point is if you write above like an eighth grade level of understanding, you can lose half the audience. And certainly in politics, if you're traveling the country talking to average Americans, don't assume, you know, they haven't all been to Ivy League colleges and they often don't understand, you know, it's not that... Not that, they're, uh, not that they're unintelligent, but they're not verbal to the level of understanding much beyond the eighth grade. In the tech industry, you might have, you know, a room of engineers, and they all understand the, the uh, you know, the, jing, the, the lingo or the, the acronyms and so on. But quite often, it's not that case. You've got, you know, customers, the press, and so on. So one of the important roles of the speechwriter, I think, is to do that translation into everyday language. We've talked a little bit about speech writing and all that it entails. And, but your bio also mentions that you worked as, uh, in executive communications. Um, how does this profession differ from speech writing, and what has it taught you? Yeah, exactly. Um, it was the case when I first started back at Sun Microsystems. I did support you know, the, the head of sales, um, the head of uh, software, and then the CEO. And, you know, people often say, this is a bit of a, a divergence, but I think it's very relevant, that, you know, often they'll comment on, oh, what an amazing presenter, you know, like a John Chambers at Cisco who's since retired, but a Scott McNeely who I supported, how amazing they are on stage, or, you know, Steve Jobs in his day. Um, the point is those people present many, many, many times a, a day, a week, certainly sometimes three or four times a day. And it's like tennis or golf. If you play it all the time, you would improve. Um, executive communications tends to be something that you get one or two levels down in a hierarchy. And it was very common, for instance, at Cisco where I worked, that they would call them XCOM managers. So XCOM, Brad's on the call, I'm sure he knows this very well. Uh, is somebody who's there to manage the communications of a mid-level manager or a senior vice president maybe who won't speak on a podium five or six times a month but has town hall meetings, has emails that need to go out, wants to do you know, a, a, what they call a skip level meeting where they might sit down with a dozen uh, a junior staff over lunch and they need speaking points, they need research done on you know, for everything from the logistics to talking to the people in that department to make sure they're not going to you know, trigger any, any hot spots or trigger anything that shouldn't be mentioned. And that's executive communications. And once I stepped back from the very C-level, CEO level, it was, there are far more, I believe, executive communications jobs in Silicon Valley than pure speechwriting jobs. And I think even the pure speechwriting jobs involve people drafting, you know, the annual report might be one of the things you get pulled into, or certainly the uh, email and, and video. So there's a whole range of things, video, 
town hall meetings, skip level meetings, and so on that fell under executive communications. Wow. And so, so did it, you know, did it teach you anything? Did you enjoy it? Like, because it seems like quite a, I mean, there's similarities, but it is quite a departure from being a purist, being a speechwriter only, right? Yeah, I, I did enjoy it because actually, um, you know, I, as you said on my, pod, on my blog, I do the podcasts of all of these conference calls, recording, editing in Audacity, which is the great little software package people that edit audio in. And I've done over 100 podcasts, mostly interviews with speakers in the National Speakers Association. So I've always been interested in the, what you, I don't know if you call it the production side or the direction side of multimedia. So executive communications, whereas if you were supporting the CEO, most of the events they go to, there's a professional AV crew. You don't have to worry about, you know, you can coordinate with them, but you can assume that the the video is going to be working and, and the, the amplification and so on. Um, in executive communications, I was often the sole point of contact, and I learned to edit video, and I learned to ask for certain camera angles and and I enjoyed that. I, I even went on a couple of video editing courses down in Santa Monica for camera work and, and editing post-production that I used extensively because I was recording subject what are called SMEs in the training world, subject matter experts, who would present you know, to camera. And I learned to do a shallow depth of field and have you know, soft lights in the background and how to mic somebody. And so to me, that was all very intriguing. I didn't see it beneath me. I, and I used it as a freelancer, and I use it now uh, as a part of my skill set. Um, well, I, I love that, and I, and I wanted to ask you about that because, you know, I think that a lot of us freelancers and moonlighting speechwriters um, could learn a lot, you know, about from you and your knowledge of it appears that you parlayed this experience as an XCOM um, into your blog. I mean, with over a thousand postings on your blog, and you appear to be a master at the craft. I mean, um, yeah, and a YouTube. I've got a YouTube channel that I did a lot of video, and actually at Cisco, which, as Brad knows, has a world class TV studio. It's as good as you know, not quite CNNs that you see in the background when their newscasters are reading, but it's that kind of studio. They would hire contractors to come in to do camera, audio, lower third, as they call it, and so on. And I would be, you know, in charge of the whole thing, scripting it, asking the the camera guys to, you know, run a B-roll at a certain time and so on. And uh, I think, yeah, I think uh, as a freelancer, it's all... I, uh, you know, value add that you can bill for with the right, right. client. That's fantastic. So uh, why did you originally start your blog? Because you had all this experience? Or, you know, tell me well, about it how it began in 2006. Yeah, because my career at Sun ended in 2004, and within a year I was doing uh, freelance work for six months, then I moved to Hewlett-Packard. But that was about the time that blogging, I guess, took off. Um, a couple of my colleagues, Joel Postman, who was working with me at Hewlett Packard, and a couple of others were blogging. So I actually started a WordPress blog and the website that went with it um, as a freelancer. You know, like you said, you can moon- moonlighting. I mean, it's, it's maybe not something you tell your manager about at work, but it's feasible <laughs> to do. Um, certainly, bringing a bit of extra money, income, and uh, that's when I started. 
right when I was between, you know, the, the career I'd had at Sun and now is no longer in the corporate world. I was contractor for a while at HP before I became a permanent employee. And I realized, which has been the case, that that blog uh, would, uh, whatever they call it, it's the brand called you, right? It help, would help brand me as a, as a member of the technology Silicon Valley speech writing community who kind of, you know, had some credibility. Wow. And, and so has it benefited you? Um, I mean, can you see your return? Like, what, what do you know yes. that the blog is brought in? So, yes, I was very amused. Of course, people asked me, my wife and so on would ask me why, you know, because I'd be up blogging at midnight and coming up with ideas. It's great, actually, personally. I, I like it because it, it's an outlet. I'm talking about my professionally speaking blog, but it's also true of my new one about kombucha. It's an outlet. You know, maybe I'm a frustrated uh, F. Scott Fitzgerald or something, but, you know, these days anybody can publish, you know, 20 or 30 years ago, you would have to find a publisher, put out a magazine, a newsletter, or a book before anybody could hear or read what you said or publish a paper, like, academically. Now we can all be publishers. We can all be TV studios and, and radio programs, you know, through podcasting, YouTube, and blogging. And... Um, so people used to ask me, well, is there any money in blogging? Because you can't charge to read a blog. Uh, that wouldn't, I don't know of a blog that would, or a podcast that charges. Um, but I can put my hand on my heart and say I've made $100,000 by blogging because I forget when, but it was you know, within four or five years of me starting it. Um, a company in Holland, a major publishing company that's known in the financial, well, they're called Walters Kluwer, and they're kind of like rotors and whatever. And they um, were looking for a native English speaker with technology experience to edit, to help produce and edit their annual report, not to do the financial side of it or the layout or the graphics, but to be part of the team. And they, it was only, you know, it's from like November till February, once a year, three-month period. And uh, they hired me, you know, it was, $30,000 a year contract for three years. So they, they, and they found me because they Googled Silicon Valley or technology speechwriter or technology whatever, and there was my blog. It used to fill pretty much the first page of Google results if you put in those kind of keywords. And then That's I fantastic. Did, that was in Holland. I never marketed myself you know, overseas. I never would have chosen Holland as a, as a potential market, but it worked out well. So... Yeah, I mean, if you're visible through a blog, through a podcast, through a, um, you know, those kind of outlets, you can build a reputation. Now, it doesn't happen overnight. The first, you know, when I look back at the data, the first couple of years I had that blog, I had 60, 80 readers a month. You know, even though I haven't updated it for a while, it's still many thousands of readers a month because there's over a thousand articles that are kind of evergreen that that people will Google. Uh, results they'll see from Google searches specifically, and they go in and read my content. Oh, well, I just read your last one that was about the Belgian speechwriter. Uh, uh, was he is he a playwright or is he a one man show that does all these speeches? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I mean, so obviously since I've retired and since I'm not going to the comp, because, I mean, it's interesting when you are blogging, you're kind of forced usually into the, well, not forced in, but the challenge is where do you get content from? And right. um, when I was active, you know, going to conferences, um, 
I wouldn't typically podcast or blog about the speech I've written or the executive I've been writing for, but I would you know, use this as an excuse or an opportunity to go interview other people at their conference. And then when I went to National Speakers Association and Toastmasters meetings, there was lots of material there. Um, this last content, well, you're talking back in September. It's been fallow for a while. It's just something, you know, I typically find through, I subscribe to the Financial Times. I get the New Yorker online and Vanity Fair and stuff. So I will typically, you know, find relevant I mean, going back, I see back in um, uh, August of last year, I had a couple of letters in the uh, Financial Times that I noted were um, relevant to speech writing topics. And so I just, you oh, know, that. I, I find them all fascinating. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But the last one I, I found riveting. <laughs> and they're all great. But that's what I'm saying. There's such a wealth yeah. of of ideas that you've, created and crafted on your site and this blog. So I think that that is a personal brand. I mean, if I was somebody looking for someone in the industry, you would be a natural just because there's so much that you've, right. you know. And I will say, anybody, anybody listening to this, I clearly remember back in 2006, well, 2005, because looking at my first posting, it was uh, scrolling all the way back, January 2006, and I clearly remember I had the blog in place. I had WordPress installed in October, November of the year before. And I literally had writer's block for like two months before I finally Aww. got to mid-January because I kept on wondering. It wasn't – and I had this a little bit with the latest blog I'd launched. But you kind of have to get, you know, what is your persona? Are you the – industry insider? Is it just facts, facts, facts? If you've got an opinion, are, the, are you the cynical? How, criti- how critical are you of things you read about? Because you don't want to be boring and just report, report, report. But at the same time, you know, you can't be too bite the hand that feeds you kind of thing. If, if you're writing about colleagues and speeches that you've seen out there, um, I always resisted the temptation to be and it's easy to find them, you know, like completely awful talks that were delivered and put up on YouTube by gray executives. And I just, you know, they're so, it's almost like too low-hanging, that fruit. But I did want to become slightly, you know, opinionated would be one way of putting it. And uh, it, it took me three months, two, three months before I kind of felt that I had an attitude that I could convey, that I found a voice and of course, that's changed and developed a little bit over the years. But once I got that, the rest of it, you know, you, and then mechanics are you use things like Google Alerts to get updates on keywords that you might want to blog. And then there's no shortage of content, uh, I found. Anyway. Once you get into the swing of it, I mean, I'm glad that you're saying stick with it because it, it, it's a rough go at first, but just hang in there and keep you know, as they say, butt in chair, right? <laughs> yeah, and, it's, and, and as I said to many people in the National Speakers Association, they're not necessarily, I mean, the other thing is it's a double-edged sword. If you're a writer, like a speech writer or a copier, and you blog, you can't get away with being, you know, inarticulate or using a poor diction, <laughs> poor, you know, sentence construction. If I was, a, you know, an all-in wrestler or something at a blog, I could just, or a soccer player or something, I could probably be whatever, you know, people wouldn't dismiss me. But if you're a speechwriter, you sort of have a responsibility to be able to write, even though written page stuff is different than for the voice. But um, 
it's definitely um, a challenge, I think, to, you know, keep the, you've got to keep the, the other thing about blogging is there's an awful lot of blogs out there where people blog for like a month, two months, three months, and then nothing. I mean, I haven't done it since September, but some people, it's two years ago, and they're still sort of portraying themselves as the expert in a certain field. So that's another thing. You've got to be aware of what you're signing up for. No, I love that. And so with that, how much, commit, how much of a time commitment would you say that you give to um, your blog monthly? Well, the original blog that we're talking about, professionally speaking, it, it goes in waves. Uh, you know, it was it's whatever they said about London buses. There's none at all, and then three come along at once. And <laughs> that was definitely, you know, I would sometimes go. I would try not to go for more than a month, uh, posting something. Obviously, I put this on the back burner for a while. But sometimes I'd find four things in a day, and then I'd, you know, I'd sort of, I wouldn't put out typically more than one or two postings a day. So I would sort of hold them in the background and put them out over, you know, and it depends, you know, sometimes you're more in tune with something and, and you could have a topic. One of the things I did on my original blog, and this has got to do with things like um, search engine optimization and things, but it's a little trick. I, 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 I kept a list, a blog roll of all the other speech writing blogs, and actually in the day it was also this professionally, sorry, the National Speakers Association blogs. I took those off after a couple of years, but right now I've got a list of about 30 to 40 on a blog roll in the right column, uh, other professional speaking, speech writing, executive communications, jobs, freelance writer uh, blogs. And one of the first things I did in the first couple of years of this blog, and I'm doing it on my new kombucha blog, is I reviewed other people's blogs. And it's kind of, in a way, it's a little trick because typically they will then, like, acknowledge your review. They might even follow you back on social media and so on. So that was one source early on of content where I would review, like, a, you know, like a movie review, other blogs. And, and that was the early source of some of the content on this professionally speaking blog. Excellent. And so in terms of, of this uh, meetup, uh, what, you know, what was the inspiration, what motivated you to begin this roundtable? Yeah, that's, that very uh, clearly was because I'd been to the Reagan conference in D.C., and uh, also in connecting with David Murray, who everybody should know in speech writing, he runs the Professional Speakers Association, the PSA, and he holds his own conference now a couple of times a year. He also edits Vital Speeches of the Day. And through the him and through the Reagan conference, I was well aware there was a Washington, D.C. speechwriters roundtable, which is more of a literal roundtable because they meet around a table at least two or three times a year when the State of the Union speech is delivered uh, by the president in, I guess it's January every year. They meet at a, some kind of a restaurant or bar or pub in Washington, both sides of the house, speech writers on the Republican and Democratic side do talk to each other and are not as uh, maybe as partisan as the, as the politicians can be. And they sit around, have a few you know, drinks, adult beverages, and, and critique the speech or comment on it or say when they worked on that speech five years before, how many sleepless nights they had. So there was the Washington, D.C. roundtable. There was also a New York, and I believe there's a Chicago, 
And all of those roundtables meet in person. And I talked to a few of my colleagues in Silicon Valley. There is no really good location here. If you meet in San Jose, nobody from San Francisco would be able to come. And there's many, many tech companies, of course, in San Francisco itself now, like LinkedIn and Uber and so on, and Twitter. And um, so there was nowhere to meet. So when I got the idea after a couple of false starts trying to have an in-person meeting, I just went to meet up and started this as a as a meetup group, and I think we have about 170 some members. And I never put any restriction on it. You know, anybody you don't have to live in Silicon Valley or be a tech speechwriter, but you know, you kind of it's clear by the name we're talking about uh, technology companies and speechwriting, and that's you know that's to do with PowerPoint. So we've had guests on who've talked about that, like Nancy Duarte and and so on. Um, and, and yeah, well, given it's a theme. Look, then you've had quite the guest. Let's talk about your the, the some of the people you've interviewed. Carmine Gallo, as you mentioned, Nancy Duarte, uh, David Murray, Patricia Fripp, and Dan right. Gerstein, and uh, Bob Lerman. I mean, these are right. some really big people. So, you know, do you, in terms of people that you've interviewed, um, do you see one interview? rise to the top, like have the most rec- re- uh, name recognition, and people say, oh, i got to listen to that? Well, I, I've always been a huge fan of Bob Lerman's. As I say, his book, The Silicon Valley, sorry, The uh, Political Speechwriter's Companion, I've met him at the Reagan conference. He was gracious to have coffee with me one visit to D.C. outside of that conference. You know, he was Al Gore's speechwriter and is um, very um, – much the, you know, one of the founts of wisdom in this. Um, it was also, though, very, uh, you know, in, in, I was very impressed. I've met her a number of times. Nancy Duarte has started Duarte, uh, Duarte Design and, and, uh, and has, um, you know, had Jeff Davenport, who works for her, was also a guest recently. And, um, and those kind of insiders, Silicon Valley insiders, uh, are very... Uh, Impressive to talk to uh, Matt Tepper, who's the speechwriter at Google, and Cicero Award winner Matt Kival, um, uh, who writes for the University of Texas at Austin. President are also, you know, they're at the top of their game. So it's what I found is like with the blog and podcasting, it, it's not that difficult to get, you know, VIPs like this to give an hour of their time up to talk to you, and it's another payoff, if you like, from having a blog um, or a podcast or a meetup group like this gives you an excuse or an entree into that kind of um, circle, whereas, you know, they might or might not just talk to me individually. No, I love that. And you get to, you know, talk with some really interesting people. I mean, what, a, what an honor. Right. I'm channeling my inner Terry Gross on Fresh Air. <laughs> I love that. I love that. So you recently retired from the corporate world, but it appears that you <laughs> haven't slowed down at all with your latest venture, Booch News. Could you tell right. us a little bit about how this publication came to be? Well, yes, it's, it is a divergence from I, – I use the, the same skill set because I'd launched a WordPress blog, as I said, in 2006, so I – I kind of had the, the techniques down, and uh, I've been brewing my own kombucha. I don't. I mean, for those who don't know, it's a it's a fermented tea drink that's 
apparently originated in China some thousands of years ago. It's very, very popular. It's known as Kvass, K-V-A-S-S, in Eastern Europe. So I actually worked with a woman in San Francisco who's in her 30s, grew up in Russia, uh, Soviet Union as it was then, I guess, and uh, used to cry, she said, at night if she, when she was three years old if her mother didn't give her a drink of kvass or kombucha. And it's huge in this country now. It's a, liter- it's a multi, multi, multi-billion dollar, million dollar business. And the, the, the category leaders, this guy called GT Dave's, go into any Safeway and you'll see the kombucha, you'll see GT Synergy or GT's Living Foods, it's called. He started when he was 15 in his mother's kitchen, like I started in my kitchen, but he ran with it. And, you know, the guy's a multi-multi-millionaire because it's a, you know, it costs like five cents to brew and you can sell it for four dollars because you've got shipping and handling and marketing. But, you know, like any beverage, like a brewery, if you go to a brew pub, they're selling the pints for four or five dollars that cost them a few cents to brew. But that's not the point. Um, it's, uh, I think it's healthy. It's good for what they call the gut health. It's got lots of probiotics in. I drink two pints a day that I brew myself. And I was in England uh, for the first time for an extended visit because I retired in, in October and visited a number of kombucha brewers over there. And I saw that the kombucha world in England, the market is about 10 years behind where it is here, although they're catching up fast. So my first couple of blog postings in Booch News are all about like a review of kombucha in the UK. And then I dug into their social media uh, presence and so on. I wasn't sure, again, what my voice was going to be. And first I thought it would be something like Wine Spectator where I did tasting notes on kombucha or something like that. But it's turned into more of a, a review of the many hundreds of small kombucha companies who are marketing their product maybe just locally and what they're doing on social media, some good, some bad and uh, how, you know, it's being – because I think majority of people, if you, stop 10, uh, if you stop 20 people in the street, providing you're not in downtown Portland, Oregon, where they drink 17 times as much kombucha as anywhere else in the country, you probably, like in Akron, Ohio, or, or even Manhattan or Berkeley, you probably find that more than half the people have never drunk it or don't know about it, and yet it's, you know, it's not going to become another soda, but it, like Coca-Cola, but it's uh, – I think it's here to stay as a as a category of, of beverage. And that's what I'm Definitely. blogging about. Wow. Now I'm curious, why Portland? <laughs> oh, well, if you've ever seen that show Portlandia, that's the place yeah. for the... That's the place for the locally sourced, uh, you know. And the, the, it's interesting, the original market for kombucha, you know, if you had to generalize, was the kind of vegan, yoga-practicing 30-year-old. But... I live in Vallejo, California. They sell, they've got hundreds of bottles on display at the local Safeway, and there's very few 30-year-old yogis uh, wandering through. So it's becoming a mainstream uh, drink as an alternative to alcohol or as an alternative to fizzy water or, or orange juice. And yeah, uh, it's, take, it. it's taking off, uh, both here in the, and in Europe. Yeah, I'm in Southern California. We're big on well, actually, that's, the, that's ground zero. That's where three of the market leaders, Kavita, HealthAid, and GTs, are all in probably 50 miles of where you live. For whatever reason, it started down there. And it's where Portland drinks a lot. Uh, the, big brewer, the big leaders across the country are all in Southern California. Interesting, interesting. So 
Okay, now that you've retired, I, I hear how much you love booch, kombucha. Uh, will mm-hmm. you keep this meetup going, and will you continue to freelance speech write? Yeah, well, yes to both. I mean, I, I'm not actively recruiting uh, you know, work and clients. That's one of the nice things about being retired. Kids have left home, so it's not like I had to, like I did in 2006, you know, write speeches to pay the mortgage. But um, the meetup I greatly enjoy, I'm always asking, and I'll ask again on this, put it out on the recording, is anybody who either wants to be a guest or knows, has contacts with, you know, key speech writers in tech companies or around uh, authors, um, I'd love to keep this going and, you know, do three or four of these conversations a year, maybe one a quarter would be a good target to aim for. And, um, yeah, I mean, it's something that I think adds value and um, it's interesting. I'm, I'm still, I think... It's still an area that's changing in the sense that rhetoric, you know, in the 19th century, people listened to two-hour-long sermons. In fact, David Murray started a site uh, with Bob Sands called Vital Sermons of the Day. So for those people who are interested in what's being said from the pulpit, there's now an outlet for that. But today, you know, it, it is much more the TED Talks last 12 or 14 minutes. Uh, there's more panel discussions than long keynotes. But there still are people out there in different industries who deliver news through the, from the podium and uh, with the video and audio and repurposing. I think it's definitely a, a, an interesting area to look into, keep looking definitely. into. Definitely. I agree. I agree. Well, this is fun. I think that, you know, I've had a lot of fun asking you questions. How about, yeah. Ian, that we open it up to our callers and see if they have any questions? Callers, do you have any questions? Uh, this is Brad. I've got a uh, question from Ian's background about you, you mentioned earlier about the um, freelancers needing to have access to the principles and an exec columns being a little bit different because you usually have a little bit more intimate relationship. But I wonder how critical do you see that whole chemistry between the uh, speech writer and the speech deliverer? And, you know, have you sort of seen the good, the bad, and the ugly on all of that over your career? Well, yes, definitely. We won't go into the ugly or the bad necessarily, but um, I think it's true. And you read about it, for instance, there's a great book called White House Ghosts. I've got it on my, on my bookshelf here by uh, uh, Robert Schlesinger about the uh, ghosts, you know, the, the speechwriters who've been, I think, when does he start? I'll pull it off the shelf here. I think he starts in the 1930s. Um, Let's see. Uh, uh, yeah, with you know, back in back in the thirties, whoever was in the White House then. Um, uh, let's see, Sam Roseman, Franklin D. Roosevelt, of course. Anyway, all the way up through to um, I think he ends with. Uh, um, let's see, is it the Clinton White House? But um, those West Wing speechwriters and each each president. He talks about, for instance, the way Nixon – well, first of all, Ted Sorensen is kind of like the gold standard because he and Kennedy were like brothers, and Sorensen campaigned with Kennedy before he became a senator, I think, before he became president. You know, they slept in motel rooms as they drove across the country in their 1960s cars, and um, he had – he actually was titled uh, not just speechwriter, but um, his book's called Counselor. 
he, he was this sort of strategic guide to the White House, um, not just for speeches. Uh, or, and then Nixon kept the speechwriters, you know, kind of in the basement and didn't meet with them directly. And this book goes into great detail about the impact of that and how certain um, organizational barriers could prevent effective speechwriting. And I think that's true in the corporate world as well. And it's up to, you know, a speechwriter in and of themselves couldn't change the, maybe change the setup, but uh, they could lobby for uh, more direct access that, and a good speaker, I think a good executive would realize, you know, that they're, they're the ones who have to, to read what's written. And uh, it's good to get that to be as closely aligned as possible to what they really think. I don't know oh, thanks for that question. The whole answer, but anyway, yeah. That's a good question, Brad. I'm sure you've, you've probably got your own uh, war stories along that side as well. I think we all do. Yes. Okay. Well, uh, Ian, this was great fun. I just thoroughly enjoyed it. Thanks for the opportunity. This was fantastic. And I feel like I got to know you more and to know, understand just the wealth of just a little bit of the wealth of information that you have to share. Uh, again, you know, I'm, I, uh, I recommend to the listeners that you go to the professionally speaking blog that Ian has. And if you want to catch up on uh, the meetups, the past meetups, you can listen. You'll, you can also find the podcast there and listen to the past meetups. So to close out, this is the Silicon Valley Speechwriters Roundtable. Happy holidays, everyone. Thanks. Thanks, Barbara. Thanks, everybody. Mm -hmm.